I think of myself first as an entertainer and then as either a singer or a songwriter or a guitarist. That's all secondary, I think, to a, a total concept. It's hard to measure what impact one person has had with their life. But looking at the roster of names whose voices contribute to the Steve Goodman biography, Facing the Music, it is clear that the late Chicago folk singer left quite a mark on many. John Prine, Arlo Guthrie, Willie Nelson, Bonnie Raitt, and high school classmate Hillary Clinton are just a few who fondly remember one of the most engaging singer-songwriters in the history of American music. Diagnosed with leukemia at age 20, Goodman knew he had a short time on this earth. In the 15 years that he lived with the disease, he penned the seminal classic, City of New Orleans, the country anthem, You Never Even Call Me By My Name, and two brilliant songs about his beloved Chicago Cubs, A Dying Cub Fan's Last Request and Go Cubs Go. In addition, he's remembered for songs that range from the honest, the ridiculous, the romantic, to the absolute most fun ever. Few could ever hold a candle to his performance style or his brilliant guitar playing. Goodman succumbed to leukemia in September of 1984, but 20 plus years later, he's still regarded as a one-of-a-kind artist. I recently sat down with the author of Facing the Music, Clay Eels, to discuss Steve Goodman's life and music and the terrific book which chronicles it. Welcome to this very special edition of Fundamental Tracks. I'm here with Clay Eels, author of the Steve Goodman biography, Steve Goodman Facing the Music. Clay, it's uh, great that you're here uh, today. I'm glad you could take some time out of your busy schedule. Oh, I'm, I'm really grateful to do this. You know, for the benefit of, of those who know nothing about Steve, maybe coming into either this program and your book, and who are saying, okay, who is Steve Goodman, or, you know, who was or is as Studs Terkel, so, uh... Uh, you know, only in the way Studs could put it uh, at the beginning of your book says, who is he and uh, why is he an artist worth knowing today? Well, Steve Goodman is not really a household word, even in some parts of Chicago, even though he's a Chicago guy, but everybody knows City of New Orleans. Uh, Good morning, America. How are you? It's, it's grocery store music. It's elevator music. Arlo Guthrie made it a hit 35 years ago. And it is something that was n not, uh, you know, elusive or transitory at the time. It's really stuck. It's an, it's an anthem that uh, uh, many other people have recorded, made into uh, versions that have been very successful. Willie Nelson put it on the top of the country charts uh, for 12 straight weeks, number one, right when Goodman died in 1984. Um, people perform it in concert almost every day. People are playing it all over the country. Um, it's the national anthem of the Old Town School of Folk Music. Um, it's, it's a song that, it's a train song, but it really speaks to the passing of an era. And if you really think about it, the, the lyrics uh, describe in such exquisite detail the fact that the trains are empty and something's happening here and we've got the disappearing railroad blues and it really 
at its core is about the mortality and and uh, the ending of things and and really then the beginning of things. What do we do with this limited time we have? And I think this really relates to Goodman. Um, so, City of New Orleans is sort of his calling card, but. People know Goodman, even though they don't know they know Goodman. I find this out every day. Goodman people are everywhere. You just have to find them. And anybody who's a Jimmy Buffett fan probably knows Banana Republics and probably think that's, thinks that's the ultimate Buffett song, but it's really a Goodman song. Uh, country music fans uh, uh, in bars all over the country sing this song called You Never Even Called Me By My Name which uh, a lot of people think is the perfect country and Western song and has the last verse that combines these classic elements of mother, prison, farms, trucks, trains. And David Allen Coe made that a hit in 1979, or excuse me, 75. But that's a Goodman song. Goodman wrote that with John Prine. He's everywhere. Here in Chicago, if you've been to a Cubs game or if you listen to the Cubs broadcasts on the radio, you already know Steve Goodman because go Cubs go. Hey Chicago, what do you say? The Cubs are going to win today. That's Steve Goodman as well. And that was a follow-up to his classic baseball song, The Dying Cub Fan's Last Request. Those are just a few examples, but he's everywhere. How did you personally first come to know Steve's music? Well, I was a college student and then a newspaper reporter in Eugene, Oregon in the 1970s and early 80s. And I had his records. Um, there was a wonderful Chicago-based TV show that went national on PBS called Soundstage. And there was a really one of the best Soundstage programs, one-hour shows in the uh, fall of 74 with Arlo Guthrie, Hoyt Axton, and Steve Goodman. And that was really where he got me because... In order to appreciate Goodman, you had to see him as well as hear him. His songs are so affecting, but the guy was magic on stage. And so the next opportunities that I had to see him in Eugene, I of course went there. First time I saw him was when he opened for Randy Newman in November of 1977. And people know Randy Newman for a variety of things, but his one hit is Short People. And it had just come out and the joke was that he had the ultimate short person opening for him in Steve Goodman because Steve was all of five foot two. Goodman said, uh, <laughs> he said that Randy Newman was an equal opportunity employer. <laughs> he said, I'm going to have to get stilts for this gig. <laughs> and the contrast couldn't have been greater. Uh, you know, to go to a Randy Newman concert, what you see on the stage is a massive grand piano, and then you see Randy Newman's head. And that's all, just his head, and he's looking down while he's playing. Whereas the opening act, he's literally dancing up there. He would bounce on the balls of his tennis shoes, balls of you know his feet, uh, green tennis shoes. Uh, he, when he'd get into a song like, uh, oh my, uh, Can't Go Back, or This Hotel Room, I mean, he'd be up there. Uh, he, he couldn't even keep his hands on the guitar. His, his arms would be flailing. Um, it was just, it was magic. And then Jethro Burns was with him that night, too, which was a whole aspect of Goodman that a lot of people 
who were musicians back then. It wasn't cool to be associated with the older generation, but Goodman embraced these elders, these people who were mentors of his. Jethro was like another father figure, and certainly he was uh, one of the best, if not the best, mandolin players ever to live. And after Homer of Homer and Jethro died, Goodman basically rescued Jethro's career and brought him out. And, you know, in his typical self-deprecating way, you know, Jethro would come on halfway through Goodman's show and he'd say, well, you know, I'm Jethro Burns' opening act, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And then I saw Goodman in a solo show in 1981 uh, in Eugene. And uh, I was back in uh, Seattle in 1984 when he died. I did not know that he was there for his last-ditch treatment. And uh, I was working for a newspaper there, and I did an obituary tribute to him uh, the week after he died. And I think that kind of planted the seed in me for doing something about it later. This guy was so compelling, and he just deserved a book, you know? And, uh, I mean, this is an 800-page book with 540 <laughs> photos. It weighs four pounds. I had a guy last fall tell me, he said, most people want to write a book that you can't put down, but you've written a book that you can't pick up. <laughs> I felt like this guy deserved a book and that probably this was going to be, or it's possible it's going to be the only book on him. And so I felt this real responsibility to do a complete job. Uh, and so here we are. The book took, well, depending on where you count when I started, anywhere from eight to ten years. And uh, and my publisher last year said, Clay, this is your magnum opus. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was quite the compliment. I mean, that means your life's best work. And and he he may be right. I just hope people don't think it's more magnum than opus. (laughs) Well, it's definitely um, such a a detailed volume. And and it's... uh, you know, it's a who's who roster of of interviewees. It seemed like you talked to everyone associated with with Goodman, um, apart from a couple family members. But other than that, everyone else seemed to be willing. What was what was the reaction of most people when you approached them, saying, "Hey, I'm doing a, a project on Steve Goodman." Well, you know, it's like a repressed emotion or a repressed uh, kind of deep seated feeling. Think about somebody in your own life who, and it doesn't have to be somebody who died, but think about somebody whom you knew 20, 30 years ago, you were very fond of, somehow your paths have gone separate ways, and you know, you've moved on from this person, but uh, the emotion still resides within. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, can I interview you about this person? you're going to say yes and you're going to and it's going to come out some people cried when they talked to me um the goodman affected people so deeply and the people you're talking about about the who's who i mean man it, it's everywhere from uh, chris christopherson and arlo guthrie and willie nelson and uh to steve martin to uh bonnie Raitt to uh uh, the list goes on and on um and and even hillary clinton who went to high school with him um these people are used to talking about themselves and they and they're they're constantly asked for interviews about themselves and they probably get tired of saying the same stuff over and over and and coming up with something new is a tough thing asking them about Steve Goodman they the the doors were open um it, it, so many people in fact 
variations of this phrase came back to me over and over, you know, thank you for doing this for Stevie. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with how he affected people, but it also has to do with the fact that he lived his entire adult life under a death cloud. He was diagnosed at age 20 with leukemia and didn't know how long he would last. It could be just a few months or a year or whatever. And this was, this was as the, the doctors say in the book, it, this was the dark ages of leukemia treatment. Today, had Goodman lived 20, 30 years later, there might have been a cure. But at that time, uh, he was basically an, a guinea pig for uh, uh, leukemia treatment. And they gave him the best shot. And a lot of his peers who were treated at the same time uh, didn't survive but just a couple of years. He was very fortunate in, in that sense. He, he managed to, to live for more than 15 years and had leukemia claimed him as early on as some others. We wouldn't have City of New Orleans. We wouldn't have Dying Cub Fan's Last Request. We wouldn't have so many of these songs that, that are, are, are either so romantic. I mean, I, I wooed my wife with his songs. I sent her tapes of Goodman, you know. Uh, romantic, uh, just just the, the most, uh, biting isn't the word, but incisive social comment songs. Uh, and just the laugh out funny songs. Um, and sometimes all put together in one song. And uh, so those, I mean, those qualities also took on added poignance for people who knew him in the music world because so many of the songs were about mortality. Were about, I mean, there's death in at least half of his songs, you know, either directly or indirectly. And um, I am sure that the musicians who regarded him so highly knew this, if not explicitly, implicitly, that this was a, a, a theme that Goodman was exploring in his music and doing it so well. And, and they just loved the guy. You, you could not love the guy. <laughs> and how do you suppose he did it? How did he manage? I mean, here, as you said, this guy, little stature, five foot two inches, but just a, a ball of energy, a ball of life. How did he manage to do what he did in that short of time with this uh, death sentence? Well, one of the things that people may assume is that, you know, once you are diagnosed with a fatal disease, it changes your life, and it certainly does. I mean, I, I, have, I don't know that viscerally, personally, myself, but it certainly, that's an obvious point. But my research into Goodman's life, into his high school years and childhood years, told me that Steve was Steve before he was diagnosed. This guy was driven from the very beginning. When he was uh, eight or nine years old, he was the star singer in his temple in uh, uh, Albany Park. He grew up in the Albany Park neighborhood. And people would come to hear him sing as much as come for the bar mitzvahs and other events that he was the soloist for. He would sing at two or three bar mitzvahs on a Saturday or whatever, and here's this little guy, not even five feet at that time. This is grade school years. Um, and, and, and up in the choir loft and singing to hundreds of people, uh, he really got his, his stage experience early, and he was adored by people then. Um, when he got into his high school years was when he really learned guitar, and there were several key people in, 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 to help him do so. 
but again, they, um, <laughs> the people who taught him guitar in those years, one guy said it just frustrated him to no end because Goodman would learn something so quickly and then take off and go ahead of him. Uh, and and he and he was born with an Goodman was born with an incredible memory. One person calls it a phonographic memory. He could hear a song, even a complex, you know, seven, eight, twelve verse song, just once, and play it back for you. Um, and he stored this stuff in his head, so his. Uh, his, his ability to perform other people's songs was just as important um, to him and to his audiences as his playing his own stuff. Now, he really didn't start writing serious music until he was diagnosed. And uh, I have to think that that played a role. I mean, he quit college at that time, um, and his the song that he wrote at Sloan Kettering during his first treatment is is sort of uncharacteristic of Goodman and it's more metaphorical and ethereal. Most of the Goodman stuff is so down to earth, anybody can get it. But his first song was really about his leukemia, a very poignant song and uh, called Song for David, which is a reference to his brother, which was a dodge, because he didn't want people to know that he was going through this big, big... Uh, uh, life crisis um, he didn't want to be known as the sick guy basically but to get back to your question about how did he do it do it I mean he was not a magazine cover idol I mean nobody who's five foot two is really um, people say that he had to compensate somehow you know there's the cliche of, of, of why people go into music is to get girls right uh, and, and that's certainly the case for a lot of guys in their high school years but uh, he had trouble getting dates. He was so lovable, but he was like the best friend. He was like the the little brother or the big brother. He wasn't he wasn't like boyfriend material. And some some girls felt that when he asked them out for a date, he was only asking them because they were as short as he was. <laughs> you know, so th there was a lot. There were a lot of things burning inside of him and and really driving him to be the energetic guy that he was long before anybody knew him on the national scene, and certainly long before he was diagnosed. Something's missing now I feel it all around The laughter of his voice is gone his warm and tender sound The way he would strum and play And sing so sweet and high Would you like to learn to dance That always made me cry I sing his tunes every now and then Just so you won't forget a good friend is dead and gone But his song ain't over yet Back in my scuffling days No bread, no job inside I sold my blood for a five dollar bill Just to see him at the quiet night I sat through all the shows 
I felt that he sang just to me Little did I know back then His road of destiny I sing his tunes every now and then Just so you won't forget A good friend is dead and gone But his song ain't over yet He gave it all that he had And he would have given more You never met a tougher guy And his songs you can't ignore A kind word for everyone A heart as big as the sky You knew he had the real stuff When he looked you in the eye I sing his tunes every now and then Just so you won't forget A good friend is dead and gone But his song ain't over yet I sing his tunes every now and then Just so you won't forget A good friend is dead and gone But his song ain't This song ain't over yet. When you first decided, okay, I'm I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna write this book. Did you have a a sort of game plan in your head or a blueprint as to how you wanted it to turn out? Well, I'm a journalist at heart. I worked for four papers for 15 years in a variety of capacities, reporting, editing, photography. Um, You know, when I die and they cut me open, it's going to be black ink that flows out, no blood, you know. Uh, And one of the things that you learn as a writer is is that concrete description is a, a very valuable thing to readers. You've really done your job if a reader reads what you write and says, wow, I can see that scene, I can see that happening. And the way to do that is to to describe physical surroundings, but to describe things in a sensory manner. And one of the senses is our hearing, and quotes are a very big part of that. That's why, um, I mean, I researched this in incredible detail with uh, newspaper clippings and tape recordings. I probably have 150 or more concert recordings of Goodman. Thank goodness for the people who taped him from the audience because he talked a lot from the stage and there's so many clues to his life and what he said. But the real, the real core of what I was wanting to do was to interview people and get these quotes, get these um, r- memories of people, uh, uh, of their encounters with Goodman and And for the most part, you know, Steve would be almost 59 today if he had lived. And the most part, the people I was talking with were in their 50s and early 60s. And and there's a more reflective quality when you're that age talking about your 20s and 30s rather than if you were interviewed about your 20s and 30s when you're living it, you know. And so there was that kind of a reflective glow to the interviews as well. And so I knew that a lot of the book... I wanted to have a lot of other people's voices in 
not only to make the book effective for people to read it, but Goodman's life, his whole, you know, if I had to say what was the lesson of Goodman's life, it's that we're not here to be hermits. You know, we're here to connect with other people. We're here to engage with other people in person. Uh, we're here to inspire people. And, 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 and what better way than with the language of music, you know? I mean, it's a very emotional form of communication. And so he engaged so many people in his life. So many people say that, that he lived more life in his 36 years than people do who live twice that. And so I think having, having um, a lot of voices in the book reflects that about Goodman's life. I mean, this is a biography of a guy, yes, but it's really the story of an era as told through one guy's life. And I think anybody who had their ears open in the 70s and 80s to the music of that time is going to find an awful lot of things that they recognize or resonate with, and then things that they didn't know, too. Um, and so that was my game plan. And the, the first chapter was, is sort of the quintessential aspect of that. My, you know, a biography is by its nature to keep the reader uh, clued in as to where you are, is by its nature chronological. But I didn't want to start out in the beginning. Steve Goodman was born, blah, blah, blah. The way to get people into the book, I figured, given who Goodman was, is to put him in a concert. I mean, Goodman was a great songwriter. Goodman was a great singer. He was a great guitarist. But what he really aspired to was to put all three of those together and, as he says, be the best possible entertainer I can be. And so I wanted to show that. So the whole first chapter is a description to the nth degree of a concert of his that was just about three months before he died. And it's, a lot of it comes from listening and listening again and again to the concert tape, but also then interviewing other people who were there and to try to be able to bring the physical description to that. And so that was really my game plan. I wanted readers to be able to, to see, hear, feel, taste, touch Steve Goodman's life, you know, the, all of the senses and bring them out that way. Did you come into the, the whole process having certain preconceived notions about Steve or certain things? Were there certain things that surprised you along the way? Well, what surprised me was how, I mean, I knew he got me, you know, but I'm just one guy. I'm just a, a, a listener, you know. Um, I also knew that he was sort of the musician's musician and that he... Uh, collaborated with so many people <laughs> but the breadth and the depth of all of that is just eye-opening it's just jaw-dropping I mean uh, one of the things I'm hoping this book will be as a service to people long after we're all gone b because of some of the uh, the back matter in the book the discography is really extensive and people will will not believe how many albums this guy played on or how many of his songs have been recorded by other people. And, and then, then there, you go further um, in that vein. When I was interviewing people, every once in a while somebody would say, well, you know, back after he died, I, I wrote a song about him. And uh, I've got it on a demo tape somewhere. Or, or somebody say, you need to talk to so-and-so. He 
put this song on one of his CDs, uh, you know, 20 years ago, but nobody's ever heard it. And I thought, okay, this is great. There, there's some tribute songs written to Goodman that uh, that that I can mention in the last chapter. That's that tells that his music lives on. Well, I kept interviewing, interviewing. You know, as a journalist, I mean, you love to be have referrals. People, you know, that's the, you, but, but it was almost maddening. Every single person I talked to, everyone, you know, that you get to the end of the interview and they start to wrap it up and they'd say, yeah, but you know what? You got to talk to X, Y, and Z and because they really knew him. And that's great. But after a while, it's like, when does it end? It, does, it's, it, it, it was literally endless. And I just decided, well, you know, there could be gold behind some of those door, door number three, <laughs> and I and so I I followed up almost every referral I had, and after a while, getting back to these tribute songs, I discovered there were twenty five songs, probably some I haven't even discovered, more than twenty five songs of, of the, the people had written that either mentioned Steve significantly as part of the scene or really were written for him and describing, and then the theme is obviously about loss and mortality and whatever, and I thought, you know, these songs need to be heard. And, so, and, 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 and not only that, it, they, they would be evidence that Goodman's music is still with us and that, the, the, you know, he's been dead for 23 years, but he's still affecting people so much that people are singing about him with their own original material. So that's where the idea of the accompanying CD came from. And so, if you, you know, every copy of this book comes with this wonderful CD. There are seven, 17 artists, 18 musical tracks. Um, in putting this together, I, I never thought I was going to be a record producer, you know, but I'm gathering these things and you have to figure out what order they're in and, and uh, you know, are all of these worthy? And the ones I thought that would be worthy, I put together and, and you know, I've listened to this CD about, I'm sure, at least 150 times and I'm not tired of it. Um, and, and I don't think others will be either. It's a wonderful a set of songs in itself um, and they, they're all over the map in terms of style and rhythm and the whole thing and all over the geographical map there are people from all over the country and there's one from England, one from Canada one from Australia it's just so fortunate and these people loved Goodman so much that they gave these tracks to this project uh, they contributed it to them certainly this will help these Give, give some uh, notice to these musicians, but really it was an act of generosity, very much like Goodman. It's, it's definitely a great companion to it, and it really shows the, you know, the, like you said, the spirit of, of Steve is, is still alive, and, it, you know, the process that you're talking about sounds a lot like Goodman himself, about how whenever someone would say, oh, this stuff is great, but uh, he would say, oh, yeah, but if you like my stuff, here's, uh, here's John Prine. It was very difficult for journalists to interview Goodman if they were really trying to dig at his dig dig into his background and get his feelings about things because you had you had to wade past past uh, you know long segments of time when it, where he wouldn't talk about himself he'd talk about other musicians and his self-deprecating nature was one of his most endearing qualities that way and uh yeah, and I, you, you talk about the book as being the process for putting the book together very Goodman-like. One of his, well, actually, the very last song on the last album that was released 
or the, the, that, he, that he put together while he was still alive is called You Better Get It While You Can. And I've really come to believe that that word get is not, you know, you better selfishly, you know, scarf up everything in sight. It's more get it in terms of understand it, you know, get the point. You better get it while you can. If you wait too long, it'll all be gone. You'll be sorry then. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, it's the same for a woman or a man from the cradle to the crypt. It's a mighty short trip, so you better get it while you can. That's Goodman's life right there. And it's kind of a funny thing that he wrote it as the ballad for Carl Martin. It's really about himself. Um, and, and, and I felt that way doing this book. Um, I felt I had to do this book. And I, and I felt I better do it before I die. I mean, I've, there are lots of projects out there I'd love to do. And I, I've tried to work on them simultaneously, but this one just kept coming back to me that I want to get this one done. Maybe some other people can do some other projects. None of us is going to live forever. Um, but this was the one that I wanted to do. I better, I, I better get it while I can. <laughs> and along the way, I mean, this... The book, of course, just in terms of, of Goodman's life, it was bound to be like this just because this was his life. It was uh, amazing, amazingly high highs and, you know, heart-wrenching um, lows. How did you manage to maintain focus through all that? Was there ever a difficulty dealing with, um, you know, reopening some of the pain for people? Was there any time where you thought this is really rough getting through this section of Goodman's life or were, or did you just kind of have that, you know, were you able to maintain a sense of focus throughout it? You know, I, it, this gets into stuff that's hard to explain. I, all I can say is that I really had a, had a drive on, on this project. Um, Maybe the fact that I've been a newspaper reporter for so long, you you get used to dealing from with all you know all over the map of topics. You know, it's everything from school board meetings to auto wrecks to to <laughs> whales beaching themselves uh, to to. I mean, you, you get maybe you get a little inured to it, but I don't think I'm a, I I. I think I'm a wear my heart on my sleeve kind of guy. And yeah, it was tough to talk with some people. I'll give you an example. Um, I'm, this still kind of affects me. Um, Chris Christofferson had a, a, a manager for 30 years who was really one of his best friends. And I contacted the manager for Christofferson and wanted to get an interview with him. And he said, yeah, Chris will do it, but he's off doing a movie in Europe now, or he's up in Canada, or he can't do it now. And we went back and forth for a year or two, and then there finally came a time, and it was on a Saturday night, the manager called me up and said that Chris could talk with me tomorrow morning, on a Sunday morning. And I said, great, that's great, I'll do it anytime you want. And so he said, I'll call you back. I'll confirm it. He called me back. We got the time to call the next morning. This was very late Saturday night, he called. And so I called Chris at the appointed time on Sunday morning. And I said, Chris, this is Clay Eels. I'm the guy doing the Steve Goodman book. And it's silent on the other end of the line. And I said, um, you may remember that your manager set up this time. And he said, 
oh, you haven't heard, he died last night. Mm. What do you do as an interviewer? <laughs> I mean, you want the interview, and this may be, given how busy this guy is, the only time that you get to talk to him. But here's a guy who's lost his best friend of 30 years. Is this the time to, how, what do you do? And I, and I said, well, maybe we could reschedule this for some other time. This could be a bad time. And he said, well, my wife told me I better go through with the interview because if I don't, I'm, I, I may not, I, you know, if, if I don't do it, we may not get to it. And besides, it'll keep my mind off of it. But here I am talking with a guy who's lost his best friend, talking with him about a guy who affected him so deeply and had died. And, and, and Christofferson says, I mean, he said at one point, he said, um, I, don't, I don't handle death very well, you know? So you're asking, you know, how do you keep focus? Um, you, you just, you, I don't know, you just try to work with people and see how it can, how it can uh, move forward. And again, the reason that their willingness is there is because of their close associations with and deep regard for Goodman. Another example, similar example, um, Goodman, he went to college twice. And the first time he went to college, he was downstate in, in Champaign-Urbana. He was, he, 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 after a while, I mean, he wasn't the best guy at attending classes. <laughs> he loved to go play his guitar rather than go to class. But he came to consider the University of Illinois as very effective as a machine for producing students to go into business and industry. And his, and his parents, his dad in particular, wanted him to be a doctor. And that was the mantle on his shoulders that he eventually shed. Anyway, he, he after almost two years at the U of I, came home and asked to his parents that he was dropping out and I'm going to Greenwich Village you know he's this is this is uh two years before leukemia this has nothing to do with leukemia yeah. he's driven he's going to go to Greenwich Village and learn how to play music for people so he gets there and he's <clears throat> he's dressed in a sport coat and, and tie, and I mean, that's not Greenwich Village. And he bumps into this guy named Justin Devereaux, a folk singer, uh, not another, not a household word, but known in the village, and he played the basket houses where they pass the basket. Yeah. He also played uh, Washington Square Park and taught Steve how to, how to play and have his guitar case open for money and what songs to play and, you know, what people like. and. Anyway, I'm interviewing Justin in his apartment in Greenwich Village, tiny, tiny apartment, and he's lived there forever. And we talk for an hour, and, and I'm about ready to leave, and he tells me, right fast, I have cancer. D Justin died about a year ago. He didn't get to see the book, but he's a major force in the book. Um, there are a number of sources like that who I got to talk to, and that was, that was part of, and this gets back to what you were talking about earlier, I really, the approach that I used to the book was really to try to elicit fresh memories of people about Goodman while it's still possible to do so. Because there are many people I would love to have interviewed, like Jethro Burns or uh, Shel Silverstein or whatever, but I just, 
I, I didn't start the project by that time or couldn't get to them in time. And at least I feel like I have this treasure chest of memories and, and, and details that I think, again, will live on past all of us. I, I mean, I've got this, this trove of, of interviews and transcripts that, that at someday I'm going to be donating to some library or archive so that other people can benefit from it. So maybe that's part of my drive, you know, to try to, 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 try to get it while you can, get the people's memories uh, while, you, while they're still able to, to recall things and, and then while they're still alive. And, and then, and I, and I don't mean to make that whole episode sound morbid, uh, you know, about Justin Devereaux or, or others. I know that these people were genuinely happy to talk about Goodman whether or not they would be able to see the finished product. There's the whole cliche of the, the process and the product. You know, the product's no good if the process is no good, right? And for, um, you have to trust as an interviewee that you don't know whether the guy who's interviewing you is gonna go get hit by a truck. There may not be a book, you know? But you, 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 we do things in this life based on some blind faith or some trust or some, you know, that most of them are going to work out well. You don't know which ones. And, and, and so that's part, that was part of the whole spirit of the project. so big that it filled his heart till it swelled and finally burst apart where the love spilled out they called it art but he never really had no choice oh he had no choice no he never had no choice when he gave his river a voice he never really had no choice was thinking that the pain came much too soon when he locked himself up inside his room oh it hurt real bad to write that tune but he never really had no choice and there was some who could not understand when he built those castles with his hands and he knew damn well they were only sand but he never really
talked about him when he died. They studied and they theorized, but when he was through, they'd laughed and cried, and he never really had no choice. It was a love so big that it filled his heart till it swelled and finally burst apart. Where the love spilled out, they called it art, but he never really had no choice. Oh, he had no choice. No, he never had no choice. When he gave his river a voice, he never really had no choice. Oh, he had no choice. No, he never had no choice. When he gave his river a voice, he never really had no choice. Oh, he never really had no choice. You mentioned the, just the, the amazing amount of concerts that you taped, that you listened to, and just going back through and, you know, being a fan yourself, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of several of the recording, you know, all of his record work several times already, but what was that process like, getting to sit down and go through and hear all those concerts and hear Goodman's voice? Well, I really learned a lot about how a good performer can capture an audience. And I really went into it knowing that, you know, you may think that going to a concert is a, is a frill or it's a, you know, the serious stuff of life is during the day and then you go, ha, go, you go take your mind off it or whatever. But I really believe, I mean, it's corny as hell, but I believe that music is a force that can save the world just like many other things. And I think we need inspiration in our lives. I think we need things that, that, that we're going to carry with us that help us through tougher times. And uh, one, of the, one, of, one of the interviewees who talked directly to this was Jimmy Ibbotson of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. He said people who listened to Goodman, who would go to a Goodman show, they would come home, they'd, they'd love their wives better, they'd take care of their kids better, they'd, you know... I mean, it's intangible, but it's there. It's really there. Um, and, and the concerts themselves, that's really Goodman's art form. He released, um, let's see, two albums on Buddha, five on Asylum, and three of his own, and then there's been a bunch of posthumous stuff. He really was into being in the recording studio and, and really em embraced producing um, and producing other people's stuff. But I don't think anybody will tell you that his records did him justice. And his records are, um, many people think, me included, uh, some of them are overproduced, you know. They're not enough Steve, you know. Uh, and it's because people have s saw him in concert, you know, and they want to be able to replicate on, that on record. And, and, and in, in Goodman addressed this in interviews several times. You know, at one point he said, you know, everybody thinks it's a problem but me. <laughs> and he says, you know, you can't, you can't, uh, when you're in the recording studio, all you're doing, dealing with is the sense of hearing. You're not dealing with, they can't see you. And so people can't see a record. And so there's a deficit there. And so you have to add stuff in to, to help 
create the picture in your mind and there's and you know that's the whole recording industry right there and and that makes a lot of sense and think of all of the pop songs that you can't get out of your head the hooks and all of that stuff the 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 sweetening the all of that and and the book goes into a fair amount of detail about Goodman's struggle with that and trying to strain for some commercial success and really and when and his last album for Asylum is is basically unlistenable because it's uh, it it doesn't sound like him it sounds like somebody trying to be an anonymous pop star um, but but to get back to what you were, you were saying the 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 concert stuff I learned a whole lot more about Goodman's craft of putting together a show for an audience and affecting them and and as he says in one interview I wouldn't write a set list of songs on my guitar to follow for anything he says he says you know I'll, I'll I know pretty much one or two that I'm going to start with and I have a couple I can bail out with if I really get in trouble but basically he's kind of sensing the audience and if you there are some some concert recordings of Goodman that have been released posthumously that where you can get a sense of the rhythm of the pacing of a concert and it's kind of a fascinating thing you know you start off with something real high energy and then maybe a couple of new songs and then you really go up and down in mood and even when somebody from the audience would would shout out a song that was too much like the song that just had come before he'd say I'll, I'll get to that later you know he's crafting the thing as he's doing it and there's an aspect of of musical entertainment where where people will uh go to a show and they'll feel like the entertainer he did it just for me and he just it seemed like it just came off the top of his head and um and yet the entertainer is doing the same thing night after night after night and that's true and there's some of that in goodman you know you can't you can't avoid that uh but there are so many examples of him pulling out some song out of his head that that, that are that are just uh, totally off the wall that you, that you know that he's really trying to do the show in the moment and really trying to serve the audience. And what results from that? You and the audience, you come home and that concert lives with you. Um, I, t- I I went to talk with a bookstore in in a a small college town in washington last week uh to to set up an author event uh, a place where i could read and have a musician come and play with me uh, some of goodman's songs and uh the person i needed to see wasn't there but she was behind the counter and she said well show me what you got and i held up the book and she clasped her hand to her breast and she says oh steve goodman this is in Bellingham, Washington, you know. Goodman people are everywhere, but, yeah. you know, but she's, oh, Steve Goodman. And, and we talked for a few minutes and come to find out that she lived in Chicago for a few years in the early 70s. She saw him perform uh, only once. And she says, I don't remember what he looked like. I don't remember any of the songs that he sang, but what I remember is the feeling. I mean, <laughs> that says it all. <laughs> so delving into these tapes you learn this kind of stuff and and it and it's fascinating and then you can apply it to other aspects of human life too you know the pacing and the and the being in the moment the being in the moment the 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 to not just be acting 
in the workplace or with your your spouse or whoever you know not just be a machine not just going through the motions but really be in the moment and and i really think goodman achieved that as a stage performer and really i mean he's gone the best but the best way to experience him is in a concert environment there are live recordings and fortunately his management company four years ago released a dvd that is two hours of just pure magic i mean if i had to recommend one commercial product of goodman for somebody who, who wants to get into goodman hasn't ever seen him perform before the dvd it's called live from austin city limits and more and it i mean no video can substitute for the real thing but that's as close as you can get it's, it's been my tool of hooking people onto goodman and it's actually the the way that i was kind of hooked onto goodman myself was through that dvd it seals the deal um now you're you're in town here in in chicago for these these old town school events and what's it like to be here for those events uh, obviously steve had that and you know steve and the old town school are inseparable uh, really, when when you when you talk about Chicago and you talk about either of them, really, um, what's it like to be in town for these events this weekend? It's kind of coming full circle. I never, you know, I'm 55. Um, the first time I ever came to Chicago was 10 years ago for the tribute concert at Medina Temple downtown. It's a high-profile event with you know Arlo Jackson Brown, um, uh, Prine. Um, it was it was three or four other people it was it was a wonderful show and i knew then i was going to start a book i didn't know exactly when but i was taking notes to the whole thing but i had never been to chicago before and chicago's a big place i mean seattle's a big city but chicago is 10 times seattle and then there's also the kind of side point that that you know chicago is this inferiority complex of the second city you know and second to both coasts kind of thing um anyway there's a lot to learn about chicago and and uh in the course of my interviewing and researching, I came here 10 times over the past eight years um, and really did some intensive interviewing. It was just crazy scheduling and zipping from one place to another. And I really felt like, like I got to know a lot of Chicago, like I can drive it. I've got a great sense of direction. I know where things are. In, in, in newspapers, they talk about uh, shoe leather, you know, you, you got to go to the place and see it to be able to describe it. And I've walked to Goodman's neighborhoods. I've walked, I've, I've knocked on doors to go inside houses, you know, st complete strangers. And they let me in so I can describe the house that he lived in or the apartment that he lived in or, or the, the, the Lincoln Avenue club scene or the Earl of Old Town. What's it like to be back here in Chicago for this? It really feels like closing the circle because here's where Goodman himself grew up and he really is a Chicago guy the last four years of his life in a strain for commercial success largely uh, he moved to LA and, and but he was really on the road a lot there's no way to say that he's not the Chicago guy I, ten years ago at that tribute concert you mentioned Studs Terkel he was one of the MCs and it was just a crack up he's up on stage and he's, and he's saying I hear my kind of town Chicago is. That's Frankie Sinatra singing. What the hell does Frankie Sinatra know about Chicago? Stevie Goodman. He knew Chicago. You know, I mean, and, and so I really feel that even though the book has so many sources from around the country and around the world, really, this is the heart of the book. 
And there was no question that the launch for the book had to be here in Chicago. This is where the highest concentration of people who knew Goodman is. And I certainly hope that the book takes off and goes national. And there are some real good indications of some national media reviews that are coming up in the next month or two. This is an 800-page book. It's going to take them a long time to, to, to read it enough to do a review of it. But uh, um, Chicago is where it had to be. You mentioned the Old Town School. You know, most book launches are in a bookstore, but the Old Town School had to be the place, you know, and they have a, a, a store called the D Different Strummer, and most of that is music and instruments, but they do sell a few books, and so it made it the, the perfect place. Now, a book launch usually is one event at a bookstore. Old Town School wanted three days. Friday night, the Six String Social at Armitage, um, that's a traditional thing, and they're making it into a Goodman event. I'll be speaking there. Harry Waller and Chris Farrell, who are two of the musicians on the CD for the book and who live in Chicago, will be there to perform their tribute songs. Um, then Saturday, there's a signing at the Lincoln, the, the so-called new version of the Old Town School uh, on Lincoln Avenue in the afternoon from 1 to 3. But the real biggie is Sunday, the uh, May 20th, from 2 to 4. Now, tell me this isn't compelling to see. You have Roy Leonard, the guy who interviewed Goodman uh, probably a dozen times on WGN, the morning show guy. He's the, uh, for 30 years, he was on WGN. He's the moderator of this. Then you have Michael Smith who wrote The Dutchman, a guy who lived in Florida, in California, in Detroit, but he moved here because he couldn't get work anywhere else because Goodman, because he wasn't as, as well known as in Chicago, where Goodman had really made him into a name because of his marvelous version of The Dutchman. If there's probably the, the best recording, best audio recording, studio recording of Goodman that he ever made, it has to be the Dutchman. It's such a gorgeous song, and it, it goes right to the heart. And it's and and it's Goodman is to Michael Smith, what Arlo was to Goodman with City of New Orleans. Um, uh, you know, Goodman had that 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 role with Michael. Well, Michael is a genius songwriter himself and a wonderful performer. The opportunity to hear Michael Smith talk about Goodman and his relationship. They wrote several songs together, Talk Backwards, Elvis Imitators, you know. Um, then you've got Ed Holstein, Chicago Institution. Then you've got Earl Pianchi on this panel. Earl could do two hours straight without a single question. And he he's a wonderful, he has a mind like a trap and can, can his, his, his stories are like they happened yesterday. Um, the guy is so heartfelt. And there's Jim Pulaski from the Old Town School of Folk Music. And then we have a folk uh, professor from Indiana University, Ron Cohen, there. And then maybe I'll have a word or two as well. That's going to be a wonderful panel. And again, Chris Farrell and Harry Waller will be there to perform to start it off. And I kind of suspect, given that uh, it's at the Old Town School and that it's sort of the national anthem for the Old Town School, that we won't get away that Sunday afternoon without all of us singing City of New Orleans. I doubt it. It's, it's always up on the projector there at the end of the, end of the classes, I can tell you that. Have you had a chance? I, I know it's, it's probably been a whirlwind. The, the book literally just came out. You know, have you had a chance to s see what an achievement this has been? I mean, 800-page book that's incredibly detailed. I mean, it's beautiful visually, too, with all the color photos, the black and whites. 
and the accompanying CD. Have you had a chance to step back and uh, look at it as a whole? You know, well, when Goodman would get a question like this, he would, he, I mean, he would somehow turn it away from himself right away. I mean, it's a very nice thing for you to say. Um, I mean, there are a lot of ego things involved with this book, with me, you know, all of the things where you are self-satisfied. Um, I, I mean, with, with any book, and I've been through a few books, but any big project, you know, at the end, something, you know, invariably something goes wrong. Nothing went wrong with this. I mean, a book so big, 540 photos, nothing came out badly. The, 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 the cover is gorgeous. I'm so thrilled with it that I got to be able to do this. And, and I, and I hope you'll indulge me for a moment and say that I couldn't do this without my wife. I mean, no project like this happens without uh, some real special help. Um, and, and, and I had a publisher. I mean, this is the publisher, ECW Press of Toronto, Jack David. He took a big chance on this. I have 70 rejection letters in my files from agents and publishers, and basically when they didn't send back a form letter, they said, we love your proposal and sample chapters but Steve Goodman is not well enough known to take a chance on in this climate, blah, 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 blah. And, and so Jack deserves a huge deal of credit for letting me have the book that I wanted to do. You know, I, was, I didn't know what I was going to do if I were faced with a publisher who, who wanted me to do some, some sort of Goodman light. Um, it, it would have been real tough. I'm so fortunate. But beyond all of this ego stuff of, of, of how I'm happy with it, I try to set it aside, and I know in my heart that this is a good book. You know, it's easy for me to say that. But but you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a, it, it, I think it will be a significant contribution. I really, you know, I go back to the theme of mortality. We only have a finite amount of time. What are you going to do with the rest of your life, Andy? I mean, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? What are you going to do that you, presuming you live a lot longer, you can look back and say, well, I don't regret having not done this. I mean, you, you want to leave your mark. Not that it's an ego, you know, like somebody's going to put my name in, on a billboard. That's not my point. You want to feel inside that you did something that was worthwhile. And I've done a lot of projects that I feel are worthwhile. I've done a history book uh, of my, my area of Seattle called West Seattle. Um, I didn't write the whole thing, but I was kind of the guiding force of it. And I did a biography 10 years ago of the woman who as a child played Zuzu in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. That sort of was where I cut my teeth on biography, and she remains a wonderful friend now. She's She's, uh, let's see, she'd be 67 years old now. She lives in the Seattle area now, and um, I count her as a dear friend. But there's nothing that compares to this. I mean, I, in my life, and I'm all about gratitude. I mean, you can say it's a wonderful book, you know, you did a great job, all of that stuff. But the acknowledgments have got 2,200 names in there, and I am well aware that this can't happen without the help of a lot of people. And I was determined to thank everybody I could who had even the small effect on it because I think it's important. It's important. And, you know, I'm kind of guided by Goodman in that way. If you go and look at some of his record albums 
and you look on the back and you look at a song title and then it says who wrote the song some of those songs have four five six names writing the song well goodman if you were in the room while he was writing the song he gave you a songwriting credit <laughs> so i guess i've got that guidance going as well in summary i th i think it's going to be a good contribution and um i i know that people a hundred years you know goodman used to say a um, hundred years all new people <laughs> I mean, it's sort of recognizing the insignificance of us all. Uh, that We like to think we're more important than we really are. We're just here a flash of time. And, and so it's nice to know that you've got something that will outlive you and will, that other people will enjoy. I think that's what it's all about. Isn't that what Goodman's music's all about? <laughs> well, Clay Eels, thank you once again for joining us here. Thank you for the time, and uh, if anybody wants to find out more about the book or communicate with me about this, I would be more than happy to do so. Um, I've got a website now. I never thought I'd be saying, I've got a website, you know, but there's a lot of information about the book there, and it's very simple to go to. It's clayeels.com, C-L-A-Y, clay, like mud, and eels, E-A-L-S, and uh, there you can email me from there, and, and we'll talk. Once again, the name of the book is Steve Goodman Facing the Music. I was walking on down the street When one day I happened to meet A guy that wrote that song about the train He showed me his brand new club He told me how much he loved the Cubs He took me home, fed me, played some songs and then he gave me a seat to hear Arlo and Pete It was too much to believe That's the way I met Steve He drove us to the borderline Me, Steve Wade, and old John Prime We talk about going on a crazy trip He talked about Nancy and the girls About the good old days at the Earl Every now and then we'd let a few secrets slip He took me under his wing, he taught me lots of things It was too much to believe That's how I got to know Steve And Chicago's never been so cold Like the day that I was told It was all over for my friend Steve And every day I sit and cry Every day I ask myself why Why did it happen to live Every time he walked right in He'd be wearing that silly grin Tell you the worst joke you just heard Sometimes we met on the road Sometimes he'd be with Jethro Those two guys were really absurd Came a star when he played that guitar He was too much to believe And that's the way I remember Steve That last time I saw him play You know he blew that crowd away We made a few plans all in vain There's a picture there on my wall Me and Steve having a ball Tag along and put him on the plane. 
He said, don't worry, I'll be back in a hurry. There's no reason to grieve. That's the last time I saw Steve. In Chicago's never been so cold. Like the day that I was told. It was all over for my friend Steve. Every day I sit and cry. Every day I ask myself why. Why did it have to leave? Why did it have to leave? We end the program with Harry Waller's composition, Why Did He Have to Leave? That and all the music you heard on the program can be found on the companion CD to the book Steve Goodman Facing the Music. If you can't catch Clay at the Old Town School, here are some upcoming dates. On Wednesday, May 23rd, there will be a reading, signing, and music at Main East High School, Steve's alma mater, in Park Ridge, Illinois. Music is provided by the wonderful folk duo known as Comfort Food. Their website is richingle.com. That's I-N-G-L-E. On Thursday, May 24th, there will be a signing and music at Stage Left Cafe, Woodstock Opera House, and the Town Square in Woodstock, Illinois. Go to readbetweenthelines.com for more information. Clay is back in his native Seattle on the 26th through the 28th of May for the Northwest Folklife Festival. Go to nwfolklife.org for more information. And for a complete schedule of events... And as Clay said, to contact him, go to clayeels.com, C-L-A-Y-E-A-L-S dot com. Fundamental Tracks is produced in cooperation with Fundamental Records. Executive producer for Fundamental Tracks is Tim White. Senior producer is yours truly, Andy Pulliam. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.